Hey, how you doing? I'm Steve Fullen. Thanks so much for listening. This episode of Being Freelance is supported by FreeAgent, the award-winning cloud accounting software loved and trusted by over 60,000 freelancers and small businesses, myself included. To claim your one-month free trial, visit freeagent.com slash being freelance. Right now, vote. let's find out what it's like being freelance for documentary producer Jaya Kunzo. This is the story of my career. It's like shipping a lot of side projects just because I want to then leads to a benefit I didn't expect, some of which is just practice, some of which is business related. I can just triple down my efforts, not on marketing and demand gen, but on the products I deliver. And then those products generate demand for me. I'm surrounded by a lot of people who the, the main object is growth for growth's sake. For me, it's, it's fulfillment and meaning. Yeah, so there is Jay. His story coming up in a moment. There is many strings to his bow. You will find out his story in a moment. And of course, if you go to beingfreelance.com, there will be links through so that you can check out the various things that Jay works on. So, I mean, that's the case for all of our guests. Over 150 stories at beingfreelance.com and there is links through uh, for all of them. And if you enjoy a particular one, please do share it with people that you know as well. And if you're able to, think about leaving a review, for example, on the iTunes store or whatever they call it these days. And, uh, you know, if you use a different sort of device or platform to get your podcast from if there's a way to leave reviews then that would be amazing can you leave reviews on spotify i don't even know but you can get the podcast on spotify for example so so yeah it's everywhere and it would be great to hear what you think but do you know what you can do you could do me a favor and help spread the word of what i'm doing with being freelance there's the articles, there's the email, there's the podcast, there's the videos, which are vlogs and more on YouTube. And if you're enjoying them, then please, yeah, do do help me spread the word either by sharing them online, be it on Twitter or Facebook or, you know, Instagram, whatever your social media platform of choice is. Or in person, if you go to a meetup or you're at a conference or you just happen to be having a coffee with somebody or you hear that somebody you know is thinking about going freelance or, you know, you're just standing waiting for a rail replacement bus and you need something to talk about in the queue, then, yeah, just tell somebody about it as well. Make them get out their phone and find the podcasts. Get them to search for it there and then and hit subscribe. Then that would be wicked. Anyway, that's enough chatting from me. Let's hear from Jay, freelance documentary producer Jay Akunzo. Hey, Jay. How's it going? I'm good. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. What I love is that the fact that before you know, I was saying welcome to the podcast was me and you discussing for about five or 10 minutes what on earth to call you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I just made, you know, freelance documentary producers sounded so easy just then. But actually, it took us a long time to uh, to get to that point. It did. Which is a story in itself. So I'm looking forward to hearing that. But, you know, I'd love to basically hear how you got started being freelance, to hear how you've got to this point where you are today. And, uh, you know, like I said, documentary producer isn't the only thing. So tell us, how, how have you ended up doing what you do today? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's funny, Steve. I'm sure everybody listening can probably relate, especially if you're doing things in new media where people say all these things are hard about being freelance and then you get out and do it. And one of the hardest things is talking to people not from your industry when they ask you, so what do you do for a living? And it's like, oh man, uh, here's a paragraph. So yeah, so I started my career as a sports journalist, actually. I was working for print publications, mostly in my home state of Connecticut in the States. And I 
really quickly realized I didn't want to move to a city that nobody knew to cover a sport nobody cared about for 10 years. So I transitioned into business. I got very lucky and got a job at Google. And that opened my eyes to brands because my job was to consult brands and agencies advertising through Google products. And uh, the title was Digital Media Strategist. And I liked seeing tech. I liked understanding marketing. I liked working for Google, but I really hated the job which is not something you were supposed to say back then. This is like 2008 because it was it was Mecca in technology, right? Google was like this amazing place everybody wrote about. And, and I, I felt like my brain was not prepared for me to not like it. And I think so often in your career path, it's just this exercise in self-awareness. And I just lacked it at that time. So I was thrashing, but I didn't know why. And if you ask me today, it's because number one, I don't do bosses quite well. I don't like big companies. I don't work for big companies. I can work with them, but not for them. And, and I wasn't being creative. I wasn't making anything. And so I left Google to work for a very small startup where I got into content marketing for the first time. And I built two content marketing teams at this tiny little startup and then at a larger company called HubSpot. And I, and I left HubSpot and I was like, okay, I've done the big tech thing. I've done the scaling tech thing. I've done the tiny startup. The only place left for me to go is venture capital, which is like the last remaining almost like jaunt to the side of this tech industry. So I worked as VP of brand for a venture capital firm for three years. And it was there that my freelance journey really began, Steve, because as I was thinking of leaving to start my own podcast and public speaking business, I negotiated essentially with them one day a week off for about a year to work on my own side hustle. And it was amazing that I got to do that. And that was like me easing into this, this wonderful work that I now do, which is kind of hard to explain, like we talked about at the top. But yeah, I write books, I speak. So half my revenue is public speaking. And I make shows for brands, both in audio and video. So what do I do? I don't know. How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So when you said, you know, I was thinking about leaving and starting a podcast and public speaking business. Were you already doing those two things on the side? I know it became your side hustle of one day a week, as you say, but were you already doing them? Yes. And I think that's a really important question too, Steve, because like, for example, working in VC, being around literally dozens of entrepreneurs, some of whom had built really successful businesses, you, you get this lore from the media of how an entrepreneur rips the Band-Aid and leaps with two feet forward and they just take risks. And then you talk to these people and they're amazing at mitigating the risk. They test their way forward. They learn. And, and then they use evidence to suggest they should head left instead of right. So I, I had a podcast for this VC. So there's me exercising that muscle in a safe space. Then I launched my own side project podcast called Unthinkable, which I still use as sort of a lead gen tool and a, a lab for creativity today. And that show was what I invested that extra day a week into as well as a f the first few speaking gigs that I could book, all of which happened while I had a day job. And what were you speaking on? Well, mostly my background had been in content marketing and I'd been writing, I think I actually did a roundup in my newsletter earlier this year. I counted 35 side projects that I launched between 2008 and today. Some of them which like, you know, they died and nobody heard of, some of which I continue to do today. But mostly I was like just writing and blogging first about sports, but then about creativity in business. And that subject became really valuable in the marketing world where content became such a powerful thing. And most people published hollow 
sort of terrible how-to or lists articles. And so mostly I was hired by marketing organizations to give speeches about how to instill better creative processes and decision-making into their organization. And is that what you still speak about today? You know, it's evolved. So I, I use my own podcast as this public lab, like I mentioned. So I started that show to talk about the creative side of content marketing, like the content word, people who are they maybe self-identify as makers and artists first. And it just so happens that brands need that skill more than ever. And then the more I talk to listeners, the more I'm like, well, you're an engineer and you're a freelance writer and you're a CTO and you're a CEO. Like It was a smattering of people. So really now that, that show becomes a way I can explore different topics. So if I had to say what it's about, I basically look at examples of work that seems crazy until you hear their side of the story. So that's why it's, the show is called Unthinkable. And that lets me explore a wide range of topics, not just content. And so when I get tapped to speak now, it's about how to make better, more critical decisions in your workplace that's based not on a best practice, but on your own situation. So like if you want to break from conventional thinking as an industry or an organization, that's where I get hired to speak. And so having that podcast and calling it like a lab, that's developed your own thought processes and yeah. thinking as well. Yeah, I call it like, it's like the aeration, you know, it's like, I think this is a good idea, but I need to like get the emotional resonance from a few people first to verify that. You also called it a lead gen. So the people that you're approaching in order to perhaps interview, you might go on to work with them. Is that what you're saying? It, it's happening that way. And, and this is this is like a happy accident. I think this is the story of my career. It's like shipping a lot of side projects just because I want to then leads to a benefit I didn't expect, some of which is just practice, some of which is business related. So the business related benefit of my show that I'm finding happening more and more is I create highly produced episodes. They're narrative style. They're like a docu-series is what I create. It's not an interview show. And so when I have, say, a head of marketing or a CEO of a company on that show, they're like witness and, and participating in my process. And so we can chit chat before and after the recording. And they also see what I do to make that episode possible. And then I can impress them with the actual piece. And so my last three freelance contracts to create shows for brands have come as a direct result of me having a decision maker on my own show. So I'm not like making money on say the audience of my podcast, that's like my community, that's my tribe. But I am making money in an indirect way in that it's it's a way to get people I'd like to work with sort of closer to my circle. And it's easier to then say, hey, why don't we work together? So you've just described the process of making those those shows. When you decided you needed that day off, you know, from your other job, was that because you were just working around the clock in order to keep that side project going or... It was actually that was part of it. Yeah, I'd say, you know, maybe if I had to put a percent to it, that was 25% of the reason. But 75% was I just wanted to invest more time in what I was most excited to do, which is like tinker on this new craft, figure out how to make shows that people adore about business topics. Because I think a lot of business content, it doesn't match the emotions we draw from our work, which is such a missed opportunity. And it also sucks. Like, I love the work that I do. And then I listen to some podcasts or watch the media or see a video. And it's like, this is bland and boring. And even if it's smart, it's like sticking a textbook down my ear. So like, it should be nutritious and delicious. Like, well, how do you do that? Let me try it. And so I like to say that the moment I left NextView, which is the VC I worked for, it was around 2016 towards the end of the year. I still liked that job, 
and yet wanted to leave all the same, which was strong enough signal that I had to leave because I wasn't trying to run away from something. I was heading towards something. And that was the first time that ever happened to me where I left a job I liked to pursue something else. And that was strong enough signal that said, you know what? I think now I'm ready. Did you do everything yourself or did you start to think that you needed people to work with you on these things? One of the hardest things I've had to try and figure out is how to scale what I do. You know, So I don't sell the production of the podcast. I say to clients, I'm happy to take that off your plate, but you might have somebody in-house or you can hire an agency or a freelancer. It's, it's a very low dollar sort of commoditized skill to just like physically edit the podcast. So I, I sell the concept. The best analogy I can use is if you are Netflix, you're a brand, you're, you're like my Netflix and I'm like the director of a show and I want you to pick up an option this show. So I'm not pitching you the physical creation of the show, even though I now own that, I'm pitching you this concept and how we execute the concept and why it's a benefit to your brand. So because my focus has to be on creativity and trust, those two things, now for some of the nitty gritty, I've started to scale beyond just working with me. So I have a story producer that helps me sort of look at all the interviews I've done and come up with a story and you know get the good stuff out from the bad. I'm looking for an audio engineer. I've worked with a few in the past that helped me physically cut together the episodes. So there's a little bit of scaling happening right now, but this is honestly 2 years in and it's happening for the first time say, you know, over the last 3 months. And I think where I to do this again, I might encourage my former self to start that process a little bit earlier. But, you know, I, I get precious with a lot of the creative process, as I know a lot of people listening do. So at the same time as you're starting doing those podcasts, you've also been doing speaking about content marketing and so on and so forth. How did you get into that? Did it start that you were invited and then you started to market yourself? Or like, how, how would that even work? Right. It's a very strange career path. And it is a lot of people in the US. It's a lot of their a lot of people I've gotten to know now who do it full time. You know, they're on the road, they do 75 to 80 speeches a year, which is insanity to me. I do about 25 to 30, and that's still a lot. And I'm looking to scale that down a little bit. But the speaking business is really big in the US. And I, you know, I've done a lot of overseas talks as well, but there's not the volume. So maybe it's not quite the career path. So when you see on someone's bio keynote speaker, that's like somebody putting author. You can decide, well, did they write an ebook in a PDF in PowerPoint? And <laughs> so is that an author? Or did they write a legitimate book? Right. And I think if you're if you're someone who's like, I'm going to write a long form thing, sure, call yourself an author because we live in a world void of gatekeepers mostly. But with the keynote speaker thing, I think there's this halo of questionability or questionableness rather where you see that tag and you're like, okay, is that like you're trying to call yourself like a thought leader or something? You're, are you full of, of crap here or are you actually a professional touring speaker? So half of my business is the latter. I am on the road earning revenue through speaking. And the way it began was I built a community group in Boston around creatives. And we grew that to about now 2,000 people. And we had local events. And I would be MC, or I would sometimes speak or be on a panel. And I both fell in love with that and also built a little bit of a network and a platform publicly where people would invite me in to speak. And so then I decided, well, maybe I can charge to be a speaker because I know that happens. So I started charging a little bit. And uh, and then I actually connected with one of my now good friends who's a professional speaker who was launching uh, a management company for these kinds of personalities, people who have personal platforms like newsletters and podcasts and speak to fund those platforms. And so he kind of showed me the ropes and trained me to be a better speaker and also taught me the business side of it. And so, you know, you fast forward to today and now it's it's a huge part of what I do. And it's 
it's honestly, it's like some of the best work that I do. I just, I love it. How did it feel that first time when you were quoting a price for, for doing a talk, but maybe you'd done before for free? So the first time I quoted a price was I felt really confident because the first time I got paid, they came to me and said, we don't have much of a budget. This is probably not your rate. And then in my mind, I'm like, aha, maybe I can start charging a rate. Didn't know you could do that. They said, well, how about you come and speak for 2,500? And I was like, okay, so I'm taking a train a couple hours away from my then home in Boston. I now live in New York. So that's where the first gig ended up being was New York. And I was like, yeah, I could do that. And then I start talking to other friends of mine that had branched out from in-house brands to go and become a speaker and author type person. And they were like, oh, no, 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 that's way too low. Like, you need to double that at least and start charging more. And you know, they, they showed me the knowledge I lacked. And it really is a bit of a black box. So the first time I proactively quoted a rate, I was confident. Now, the problem, Steve, is I quoted the rate and they were like, okay, yeah, no problem. And I was like, ah, damn it. Like I should have, I should have tripled it instead of doubled it. Like, what was I doing? It's like, ah, and that, that continues to happen to me today. Like it's a continually, I think the high watermark is higher than they're, they're going to scoff and be like, no, 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 I don't want to work with you at all. And then most people are just like, yep. Okay. And it's like, ah, damn it. I did it again. When you're doing those talks, though, I mean, okay, obviously they're paying for your brain and your presentational skills, and, you know, all of the experience that might feed into it. But also, from your point of view, there must be a logistical, well, I'm taking a day out getting there, a day back. Presumably, you have to factor that sort of thing in. Like, is your other work stuff that you can do on the road? I think it, the beauty here is that because I wasn't doing client shows at first, I was only doing my own show and speaking, I found a way to make my, my newsletter, my show, and the speeches feed off each other. So an example would be like the speech is really the best work, the best stories, the best honed ideas I have. And there's two ways to get it to that point. And you mentioned they're hiring me for my thoughts, but I think they're really hiring me for my product, which is the speech. Like the way I generate leads is people see me speak and they're like, we have to have you come speak. I think most people perceive it as if you're internet famous, you get hired to speak. And yeah, that happens to some people. But the real business happens when somebody consumes your product in the room and they're like, we'd like to bring you in now to our event or organization. So that the product is the speech. And to get it to the point where it has to be great, I'm like constantly working on all the beats. It's very similar to being a stand-up comic where you're going to small clubs to work on the material ahead of your big Netflix special. Well, my Netflix special is a giant room of thousands of people and the small clubs are the tinier rooms. So yeah, they maybe distract from client shows, but I find that I can line up my workflow nicely where if I'm on a plane and I don't have like great internet, I can edit or I can script. I'm sort of seeing the world, but not really because I'm mostly spending time either I'm on in the event, I'm either speaking or attending the event, or I'm back in the hotel room or a conference center, like writing my shows. And you know, it's, it's my work day, essentially. So I, I've made the two integrate, essentially, that, that would be my answer is they integrate nicely. So actually, you don't feel like you have to proactively market yourself too much. It's more like it feeds itself. Both halves of my business really do. And I'm very grateful I've discovered that because now I don't have to like panic read all these blog posts in my Twitter feed that's like 17 tips and tricks for growing your email list. You know, it's like I also don't have to worry about constantly trying to sell and sell and sell. You know, I want to live a life and build a business where the great work speaks for itself. And I'm fortunate that it takes a hell of a lot of work, but to get a speech that's what they call referable, 
In other words, it generates referrals and it gets shows that do the same thing. I can just triple down my efforts, not on marketing and demand gen, but on the products I deliver. And then those products, because they're both public, generate demand for me. You know, again, I know not everyone has that. It's my face, voice, and person on a stage. It's my voice and sometimes face if it's video in a show. So, so I have that sneaky advantage. And so then did actually pulling together a book follow on from like you saw other people doing talks at the events you were going to and it all have a book or a way of condensing it down or is it another way of saying here's my thoughts hire me to talk about them like yeah so in the speaking business and i do put the book under the speaking business it's you know i'm not in the business of selling books i'm an author but i don't want to sell a million copies i'd prefer for a million people to read it but it doesn't mean i have to sell a million copies I, i use the book to do things like improve credibility. I'm also intrinsically motivated to write a book. I've always wanted to write a book. And so my first one came out actually this October called Break the Wheel. And so when I was writing Break the Wheel, I was able to use my speech content and the lessons I learned there, my show content and the stories I told and the insights I distilled and my newsletter content as a feeder system into writing the book. So while I did a lot of original research and had to supplement both details of existing stories and add new stories. I had this awesome spine of what I wanted to say and where I wanted to place different stories all pulled from existing content. And now that the book is live, it feeds right back into the system where now I can you know, book more gigs at a higher rate or I can get onto different press opportunities, which land gigs. It's a, it's a really nice virtuous cycle. How did you actually go about writing it? Did you take time out? Not really. So speaking is surprisingly seasonal. There's a ton of... You're on the road a lot in June and the surrounding months. September and October is another spike. But winter months and also around July tend to be pretty dead. This isn't the case globally, but it's the case in North America. So starting in December of 2017, I began to put together a book treatment, which is just a blurb about the book and then an outline. I began to do all my research, at least gathering together past material. And then I began to write in those dead months. So it was two to three days a week, walking to my favorite coffee shop, being the first one there in the morning, writing for three hours. You know, My goal was two to three times a week doing that. And then every week on Thursdays, it was just for the book. And so I tried to compartmentalize all these other projects I'm working on to be able to deliver a manuscript in time for when I wanted the book to come out, which was this fall, which is another busy season for speakers. So yeah, I was going to say, how do you manage this whole workload? So it is compartmentalizing, as you say, all of the various different things. Yeah, I try my best at that. It doesn't always work out, but at least it's top of mind that, okay, Mondays are admin days. So if I have networking calls, or if I need to organize the week, or I have a call with with my manager of awesome, who is my assistant, and we say manager of awesome, because she's about helping me deliver a, an awesome experience to the client. But she she helps me organize everything and helps me with some of the back end systems in the business. So we'll talk on Mondays, you know, so I know I try to like break up instead of breaking up a day, I try to break up weeks into sort of like themed days. And then again, because back to the seasonality of speaking, because that's the case, I also know, all right, it's June, which means, you know what, I'll probably be on the road Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays a couple of times this month, if not more. So I need to rearrange that. So I have this nice cadence set up. And then I know it gets disrupted, maybe, you know, in the peak seasons. I mean, I have to ask you about the manager of awesome, clearly. (laughs) 
So were I to give them another type, is that like a virtual assistant type thing? Exactly. And and she's a virtual assistant. And when I started recruiting for this role, her name is Meg. She's amazing. And when I recruited for this role, I called it that. And then I explained why I called it that. It's because I found myself unable to provide increasingly awesome client experiences. Like I was just in maintain mode with my business. I was doing everything and I was not able to take on more work or improve the work or the interactivity and engagement with my clients. And so a really good friend and mentor said, I need to be in the business of creativity and trust. And and I wasn't able to do that well without having someone else come on and take some of the work off my plate and enable us to try new projects. Like, you know, I can now write handwritten thank you cards and, and, you know, little things up to big things became easier. So she helps me provide an awesome client experience. So you felt like you were you were doing everything and it was ticking over, but it was taking a lot out of you and you weren't doing it to the awesome standard that you wanted to be doing it. No, I, I you know what? I'll be honest. I burnt out hard. And it was the classic, like, I'm going to muscle through all these things. And I was working around the clock. And I, I even had a moment over the summer. Now, people are listening to me say things that sound strategic and smart. And half of the reason is because I think I'm doing okay. But the other half is I speak for a living. So I know how to make things sound good. But (laughs) really, really, I need to tell you, and and this is for you, Steve, and everybody listening who's like, wow, this guy has shit figured out. I don't. Like I'm making this up as I go. And over the summer this past year, I started thinking about getting a job right down to the point of talking to a few companies. And and, And like I look back and I'm like, what the hell was I doing? Well, what, what I was doing was I was thrashing. I was struggling, right? And so I had to look myself in the mirror and be like, okay, I need some help. I need to focus on what I'm uniquely qualified to do for my clients and my business and myself. And that means hiring Meg. That means hiring a story producer. You know, That means maybe saying no to certain opportunities that aren't directly in my focus area. So I had to get back to my kind of like first principles, the foundation of why I do this work. And I, I had this terrible moment which in retrospect was necessary because I feel a little bit more reset and focused now. But again, do not have it all figured out by any stretch. So you were doing too much and it just got to that point where you thought, why, why am I putting myself through this? Yeah, totally. And I lost, I lost two clients at, in the same day, actually. They alerted me. I knew one of them was coming because they didn't raise venture capital. And then another one I lost because their clients were delayed on payment to them. So I was like, okay, we can't continue to work together if you can't then pay me. So I lost two clients in the same day or week. And uh, so that was like a gut punch, right? And it was like, oh my gosh, like there goes most of my revenue when I'm not on the road. And, you know, I knew we wanted to start a family with my wife. So it's like, I can't just be on the road to earn that revenue. So that really was that existential moment, which I think if you had a photo of me from May of this year and then August of this year, I think I go from full head of brown hair to like (laughs) the Dr. Strange gray sideburns later that summer. Like, I think it happened that fast. But just as that happened fast, how quickly did you feel like you've even got a grip of it? I guess fairly quickly. I mean, it's almost like the days are long, but the months are short or whatever, because I I look back and I'm like, well, okay, that was a quick hiccup. It wasn't a giant roadblock, but in the moment, it obviously feels huge. And did, and did, did that come from bringing on the extra help? I think that was part of it. Honestly, I think another was a tough pill for me to swallow, which was so the, the entity through which I make shows is called Unthinkable Media, which is me and other freelancers. It's it's my business. And then I, I bring on help as needed for these, these programs I'm building, these original series. And I think at, out of the gate, when I decided I'm going to make client shows, 
I was trying to operate it like a scaling startup and I was making decisions accordingly. And then I had to reset when I hit that bump to be like, well, why do I want to do this work? I don't want to create workshops. I don't want, I want to be the host. I want to be the talent. I want to be the creator. That's what I love. And there's nothing wrong with that, but my behavior doesn't actually map to that desire, to that aspiration. So I I just got back in touch with like why I actually want to do this work, which forces you to make some tough choices. It's like a decision-making filter. And this is really what the book is about. It's like, if you can understand yourself and your situation first, then all the best practices in the world serve you. But you have to start with like self and situational awareness to make good decisions. And I lacked that for a time and tried to get that back. So were you trying to grow bigger than you actually needed to? Like you enjoyed actually making the shows. That's what you enjoyed. You like being on the shows. You like working with the people you were working with, putting together, even if that was hiring other people to, you know, help create them. Was it getting to that point where you felt like you needed to get too many shows on the go at once because, hey, that's how you grow? Exactly. I was doing what works in general or just sort of like what one does, and I'm using air quotes, to succeed or to grow a business, not what I aspired to do, which means that I, my heart wasn't in it, even though I didn't notice it. And I was making decisions that were misaligned with my own values or goals. I'll give you an example. A buddy of mine runs a tech startup. And he chose not to raise venture capital, which for him was that moment of like self-reflection and self-awareness. They're growing through profit, even though they're a software company in a very tech-heavy city. And he and I talked and he's like, well, so you're here, Jay. You have a couple client shows. You'd like to do more creatively aggressive versions of those with existing or new clients. And you'd like to pick up one more client. Like, that's what you told me. And I was like, yep, you're with me so far. And he's like, okay, so you're here just go there. And he's like, that's one step forward. Like now just try to bring on like the next version of you who's a little younger and cheaper. Like you don't have to like set up a structure and a system to have seven employees or to have 20 shows, just go from A to B. Like I was trying to skip from A to Z and it made no sense. And that outside perspective was really, really helpful. I'm actually wondering, like you're obviously surrounded by a lot of, or have been surrounded by a lot of venture capitalist type startup type firms. You know, you've said these sort of things a lot. You work with them a lot. And I'm wondering whether now over time you've picked up the good things that you can learn from those companies and the things to avoid from those companies. It's been huge for me. And I worked really hard when I was in Boston, going to a ton of networking events and then moving to New York and doing the same. So I feel proud of the effort I put in to build that network. And it happened both during the day jobs I held and afterwards. And now I'm sort of like extracting that value. So I was at one point adding as much value as I could as a community builder. And now I'm able to extract it in different ways. And I think the good side of it is, you know, I think about my own show. I mentioned it's a good lead gen source, but it's not a guarantee everybody I have on the show that I'd like to work with will become a client. So it's a, it feels taxing sometimes to work on something that doesn't directly drive revenue A to B. But I look at that as I'm building product. So that's pulling from my software startup background. Like you have to invest in building a good product. And for me, that's a public version, a public proof point that I can do these shows. And it's also practice for my skills that I apply to client shows. So eventually I have to, I have to invest in product, even though I'm not like directly making money. And I think a lot of freelancers, we can get caught in this idea of like, we're constantly in marketing and sales mode. And yeah, I have to do that too, but I also have to make sure I have that product, my skills, my abilities, and my show. So that's a good version of the startup thing. And I'll give you the bad really quick. 
The bad really quick is, is what my friend in Boston chose not to pursue, but what most people pursue is this idea of hyper growth where it's like, the other day I thought, I'd like to do two more shows next year. And then I thought, well, why? Like, what do I need that revenue? Is it something, am I not creatively fulfilled in the current shows? Like what's causing me to think about that? And where I landed was like, well, it's actually because that's what one is supposed to do. You're supposed to grow giant percentage number here. And it's like, well, but why? Because that's what everyone else does. That's a terrible reason to inform your decisions. And in that way, I wasn't actually living out the lessons of my own writing. So that's the downside is I'm surrounded by a lot of people who the the main object is growth for growth's sake. For me, it's it's fulfillment and meaning. So your book was Break the Wheel. Mm-hmm. So what what is what, what is the crux of that? Is it kind of like everything that we've just been talking about? I, I think I live out the values of it, but the topic is a little bit different. So I, I here's the statement that everybody agrees to right away. Finding best practices is not the goal. Finding the best approach for you is. Like unanimously, everybody agrees with that. But then we don't think about how to do that. Like we, we replace our own context with some generalized advice. And I actually think we have it backwards. When we make decisions, we should start with our context. You know, we should hone our ability to act like an investigator, you know, ask really good questions of your own environment to find the answers you need, just because someone else looks somewhat like you and says, you have to do it this way. That actually doesn't mean it's the best decision for you. So this book is fundamentally about how to make the best possible decision in your scenario, regardless of the trend, regardless of the best practice, regardless of what everyone else who might be an expert in your mind says you have to do. Of course, there'll be links through at beingfreelance.com so you can <laughs> click through and, uh, and find everything that Jay's up to, which is clearly a lot as well. Like, so, so to listen to his shows, but also the ones that he does for his clients and, and break, break the wheel as well. Now, I always do this thing where I ask for three facts about yourself to make two true and one a lie and let me figure out the lie. What do you have for me, Jay? Okay. So number one is, as a public speaker, I'm actually really terrified of speaking. The second is in the eyes of the NCAA, which for those outside the States is like the collegiate athlete organization. So the college sports teams flow under the NCAA organization. So in the eyes of the NCAA, I'm actually a professional basketball player. And the third one is I've actually never sold a campaign. I've never sold a client through a cold outreach. It's always been inbound. <sighs> okay. A public speaker who is terrified of speaking. Now, here's the thing. You do not remotely come across as somebody who is terrified of doing it. And yet, I'm also conscious of the fact that I probably don't come across as somebody who would be terrified of doing that. But I'm not entirely sure I believe that. You seem so confident. It would be quite nice to think it's true. Two, it, technically, you're a professional basketball player because uh, the NCAA think you are. Okay, in that case, what was the team that they think you play for? Sure. I mean, this isn't this isn't like Duke or North Carolina here. I went to a, a small school called Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. So it's a, it's a pretty minor college in terms of like the, I don't know, national recognition in basketball. And what was the name of your team? The Bantams, which is a tiny little angry chicken. That's I was going to say it's a yeah. chicken. Isn't that crazy? It's the Bantams. Oh, God. My experience of this sort of thing is mainly through film and TV, and I was expecting some sort of a tiger or a leopard. You were an angry chicken. An ornery fowl. (laughs) 
Did you have cheerleaders? Please tell me you had a chicken mascot. No, the school we did. No, no, no. We did have a chicken mascot, which was hilarious. <laughs> it was a, a guy would dress up in a chicken suit. Um, and then with the cheerleaders, no, it was uh, we had two thousand. 200 students in the whole school so there wasn't quite the infrastructure let's say that you imagine when you think of collegiate sports especially in the u.s okay i think that's true so it comes down to terrified of speaking or you've never had a client through cold outreach it's all been inbound now given that you still are respected in the content marketing world that's what you were speaking on. You did all the blogging, you've done the podcast, people come to you. So you've never, the thing is, you must outreach. Okay, no, I'm going to say that. That's a lie. No, terrified. Are you terrified? No, I don't think you're terrified. That was what I actually thought, wasn't it? I don't think you're terrified of speaking. That is correct. I'm not terrified of speaking. No, it's a it's a disease that I have. I'm like it's everyone's huge fear, and for a select few people with something broken about their brains, <laughs> I love it. I love every second of it. <laughs> Excellent. That if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance, what would that be? Just you have to surround yourself with people who can help you. Not only business wise, I get that right away, but I'm such an extrovert that working alone all day every day really can have a mental health detriment in my life. And so I have to make sure, you know, whether it's now that I'm hiring people, it's just constant interactivity with them, or it's like baking into my life more than work to go and socialize and take breaks and, you know, go for a walk without looking at a screen. I'm so in love with the work I do. And I'm such a romantic in general about big ideas. Like work has a ton of meaning for me that I can get lost in it. And what I don't recognize is I really do need to pick my head up and go and and interact with human beings because that's where I actually draw energy. Because actually, now I think about it, you mentioned about going into the coffee shop when you were writing your book. But where do you normally work from? Is it from home then? I do. Yeah, I have a home office and uh, my assistant is a beagle who loves to bark without giving me any warning. <laughs> so podcasting with puppies is a new show coming soon. Podcasting with puppies. <laughs> uh, but I work mostly from home. And especially now that I've moved out of New York City into the suburbs, there's not really that like local coffee shop with a ton of exposed brick to go and like sit and hang out with like cool young people. So it's mostly just me heads down alone with my dog. So I, I have to now even be more proactive about that. Jay, it's been really great chatting to you. Thank you so much. Go to beingfreelance.com and of course, there'll be links to it as there are for all of our other guests uh, through to what Jay is up to, but also how you can get in touch with him on the various social platforms and things like that as well. While you're there, why not check out our newsletter and the articles and the vlog so you can see what I get up to as a freelancer each week. Uh, that's on YouTube, but it's also at beingfreelance.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So yeah, leave a comment on that to boot. But Jay, thank you so much and all the best being freelance thank you you too 